Georgia farmers are used to ups and downs. Recently, the downs have been steady. We are facing one of the toughest droughts I've seen in years. And, you know, we just can't believe it. You know, we went from extreme rain following Hurricane Michael now to extreme drought. With environmental disasters, stalled aid, and now China canceling all U.S. ag orders, it's taking a toll. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today on Second Thought, research from the University of Georgia on farmers' mental health and the increased risk of suicide in rural communities. And next week marks the 400th anniversary of the first ship carrying enslaved people to Jamestown. I always say my story started in 1619, which is the year that the first Africans were brought to this country as slaves. And I say that because I think you, you just cannot understand anything about racial inequality today without going back and looking at a lot of things that happened in the past. From the Middle Passage to today, after the news. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. A quick note, we will be talking about suicide in this next segment, specifically in rural communities of Georgia. So if you or someone you know is looking for help, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. Farmers and the rural communities that they live in are known for resilience. Over the past two years in Georgia, they've taken hit after hit. Georgia farmers have endured environmental disasters, stalled aid packages, and now China canceling all U.S. agricultural orders in response to rising tariffs. Well, recent research from the University of Georgia points to how those stressors could affect a population already at risk for suicide. Dr. Anna Shiat led the research and is here with, to talk with us about how this information could better equip rural communities in preventing suicides. She's joining us from Athens this morning. Anna, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So your other research has mostly focused on mental hil- mental illness in the criminal justice system. So what is it that drew mm-hmm. you to studying suicide among Georgia farmers and agricultural workers? It was actually relatively serendipitous. I was in a meeting with uh, Sam Pardue, who's the dean of the College of Agriculture here, and he came in one day quite upset saying, did you know the CDC has put out a report and farmers have an elevated risk of suicide? And I hadn't heard that, but I said, I think I know a data set, a place where we can get some more information about it. And I had done some work before with a data set the CDC has called the Violent Death Reporting System that records information on homicides, suicides, unintended firearm deaths, and was able to look at the Georgia data to start trying to find answers about what's going on and what can we do to help. Now, the CDC report originally said that farmers have the highest suicide rate against other professions. That was later retracted. But what did you find? What was included in the data of the violent reporting system beyond just the numbers or statistics? Well, that's one of the things about this data set that I found incredibly helpful was that in addition to the statistics, they capture summaries of the police reports and the coroner or medical examiner reports. So we were getting snapshots of the actual stories of factors that seemed to be happening at the time of the suicides. Mm -hmm. So we found a couple of things were very prevalent. One Similar to other groups, relationship issues and relationship loss was uh, very frequently associated with the suicide. One that I found more surprising was health issues. Mm -hmm. People who had suddenly gotten a diagnosis that was very negative of cancer or something like that, or someone with a chronic health condition and chronic pain who simply couldn't work anymore and didn't want to be a burden on their family. 
So when we look at these cases demographically and the data set that you were looking at, who these factors, notwithstanding, who is most affected by suicide in those communities? Sure. In the group that I looked at, it was overwhelmingly male, like 97% men, white, um, and older. Almost 54 years old was the average. Um, So that, which, if you think about it, is sort of the demographic of many farmers in Mm -hmm. Georgia. White men who are older, uh, sort of evenly split between married and never married, and with a high school degree. So... Besides these factors of relationships and health factors, another huge consideration for this population, especially financial issues. This is a livelihood based on a commodities market. So what did you find in the cases that you looked at? Sure. I found financial problems were listed as one of the top um, factors associated as well. But the thing that I think, if I continued looking in this area, I would like to look at is how financial issues might be playing in in ways that we didn't necessarily hear in these data. For example, all these health problems. Well, how many of these folks had health insurance? How many of them had huge bills? And how much was that a factor in the stressors that may have led them to feel like suicide was their only option? So financial problems were huge. And now all of the data that I looked at predate Hurricane Michael. Mm -hmm. So I've asked and recently gotten permission to get more recent data. So we'll be able to look at that and see the additional stressors. But we're hearing nationally that the weather, the tariffs, all the things that you mentioned earlier are putting additional stresses on the rural communities. Right. We had Hurricane Irma in 2017, followed by Mm -hmm. Michael in 2018. Let's look at crisis factors. In June, we spoke with Mark Peel, a cotton farmer from Berrien County, who weathered the hurricane, that political battle over promised aid, and again, the escalating tariff war. I mean, well, I mean, storms we're going to have to weather. I mean, a tariff storm and Michael storm and Irma storm and now the drought. You know, we understand that to a certain extent we're kind of pawns in this, this tariff game, but, you know, it's no game to us. So what do you think when you hear that, given the stories that you read about how people felt? There's a, there's a sense of powerlessness there. Are, are you worried? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think farming is one of the few professions I can think of where you can work as hard as possible and do absolutely everything right and still fail because of the weather, because of the tariffs, because of the policies before the economics. So this sense of helplessness in a community and in a population that is incredibly resilient and prides themselves on their strength and their independence, I think generates a sense of hopelessness And we know that hopelessness is the one thing that is most associated with individuals who attempt to die by suicide. So I think it's an elevated risk. And even if it's not a risk of suicide, it's a risk of increased substance abuse, increased relationship issues, increased health problems, because stress is bad for our bodies as well. Speaking with Anna Shiat, Dean of UGA School of Social Work, and we're discussing research that she led looking at Georgia farmers and the high risk of suicide. So from the data and accounts that you reviewed, did people show signs when they were considering suicide? Yes, actually. Um, We had a number of examples where people had made suicidal threats and the individuals that they talked to didn't think they were serious about it, didn't take it seriously. Um, So verbal um, cues and indicators were common. There's also behavioral cues and indicators that were 
discussed in some of these data. So, for example, in one case, a family member said, you know, last week this person showed me where they kept their will, hmm. and I should have known that that was um, a key. So if, if, and in general, you know, in terms of warning signs for suicide, behaviors like putting your affairs in order, showing people where you keep your papers, um, giving things away, leaving messages. There was, I think the, the quote that pulled at my heartstrings the most in this study was a farmer who left a voicemail for a friend of his, and it just said, my wallet's on the mantle, and please take care of my cows. Mm, guy. It's heartbreaking. Yeah, it is. It's really sad. Well, and we know, you know, forever, uh, farming has been a mercurial business based on so many factors. But farmers characterize themselves as resilient, you know, as patient. We weather it out from one year to the next. Do we know why so many of them do not end up getting the kind of help they need, even when they're sending out these signals? Right. I think in rural areas in general and amongst Men, it's been shown in general, being independent, being resilient, being self-sufficient is highly valued. So asking for help is a very difficult thing. And in fact, the American Farm Bureau Federation did a national survey this past spring um, where they talked to people about these issues and found that 65% of the rural adults they interviewed or surveyed um, and 63% said stigma and 65% said embarrassment would be an obstacle to them reaching out for help. So yeah. it's just culturally not syntonic with what they're used to. Yeah, and just crushing. So what are some of the ways that individuals who are watching this, witnessing this, loved ones dealing with suicidal thoughts can do something? Well, I think the first and most important thing is not to be afraid to talk about it. And if someone is sending off signals, either through behavioral indicators, like I mentioned before, or actually talking about, you all would be better off if I weren't here. Mm. Um, who cares if I'm dead? Those kind of things. Or you know that they've had significant losses recently. To just say something like, you know, you're scaring me. Other people who talk like this think I've been thinking, I've thought about suicide. Is that something that you're thinking about? And just put it out there and then do a lot of listening and support. How about on a communal level, those they come in contact with? Are there changes that can be made? I think so. One of the things that I highlighted in my study and that I've seen other places is that in rural communities, if we can identify sort of the points of contact that people have with other trusted individuals. So, for example, health issues is a, was a big associated factor. Well, primary care physicians, the nurses, the receptionist, they should all be trained to recognize these warning signs and to know what to do. Clergy. Um, if you think about loss, think about funeral home directors, divorce lawyers, again, clergy, as I mentioned before, bankers. All of these people in the community can be trained to identify risk signs and signals that people are giving off and then to know what to do, which is listen and then say something like, would you be willing to come with me and let's get you some help and to really try and persuade someone to engage in a helping process and to give them hope that somebody cares and that there is something to do. There has been there have been cases where people are traumatized by whatever degree where social workers, psychologists will come to them 
and mm-hmm. and try and approach them on their own turf where it might be more comfortable for them. Is that a program that you've seen work anywhere else, and especially with rural communities? Well, in general, uh, mobile crisis outreach is a model where people will go to the site of the crisis and has been shown to be very effective. The challenge in rural areas is just the distance. So getting there quickly, getting information to, or getting intervention to people quickly can be a challenge. Um, one of the things that I've seen as a way to overcome some of these distance issues is telepsychiatry and telemedicine. Um, there's a wonderful program in Kentucky that works with veterans where there are computer terminals in a space called the living room in the library, which is a private room. And the veteran can go there and through Skype or Zoom or whatever – Talk to their therapist, but it's not going to the mental health center. It's not stigmatizing. You're going to the library. Then you just shut the door and you have your intervention. So I think that there are lots of creative ways that we can be reaching out. And there are lots of people in rural communities with the capacity to help. And one of the resilient things about rural communities is that they take care of their own. So let's give them the tools to take care of their own. Well, this, of course, is not exclusive to Georgia. You were involved at UGA's Rural Stress Summit last year. There's attendees from all over the country. Here's a clip from Speaker Ted Matthews, director of Minnesota's Rural Mental Health. I would like to ask everyone in this room how many times they've heard a farmer say, hold on a minute, I have to call my psychologist. (laughs) Doesn't happen. So we have to figure out how to work with them how to get to them, how to, how to hear what they have to say. Farming is different in a ton of ways. One is that it isn't an occupation. It is a way of life. So when you- That was Director of the Minnesota Rural Health, Ted Matthews. Do you see mental health programs like those ever working in Georgia? I think they could. One of the other speakers at that conference also was from North Dakota, and they were doing wonderful work um, through their extension agents and in doing outreach. So I think there are models around the country. I think there are things that are beginning to happen in Georgia. I know our extension agents are talking about this. I know that the Department of Behavioral Health, their regional person who's down in southwest Georgia, has been doing mental health first aid trainings and the Agencies down there have been reaching out. So there is the possibility. But I think one of the things that Ted said that's really important is that farming isn't a job. It's an identity. And so finding people that farmers trust is huge. Anna Shiat, I want to thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Anna Shiat, Dean of UGA's School of Social Work. We've got some great comments on our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. About this very issue, you can leave your comments there as well. Coming up, the 400th anniversary of the first slave ship to arrive in the U.S. A somber moment, but an amazing project to explore it. Stay with us for that. We are back for, with GPB's On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. This year marks 400 years since the transatlantic slave trade began in the U.S., On August 20th, 1619, a ship carrying the first enslaved Africans to what became the United States arrived in Virginia, changing the course of American history. This somber anniversary is commemorated by the 1619 Project. It's a New York Times initiative spearheaded by investigative reporter Nicole Hannah-Jones. It's an unprecedented project, and it's the subject of an entire issue of the Times Sunday magazine, part of the kids' section, and a full digital package on the impact of 16. 
1619. So we're going to dedicate the rest of our programming to examining the ripple effects of that first ship and what it had on national and local history. Nicole Hannah-Jones joins me from NPR New York. Hello. Hi, how are you? Very well, and, you know, excited to speak with you. It's an amazing project. She's an author and African-American studies professor. Leslie Harris is also with us from WFMT in Chicago. Hello, Leslie. Hi there. And in the studio with me is author and DeKalb County CEO Michael Thurmond. Michael, great to have you with us. Good morning. Delighted to be with you. Well, so glad to have you. Nicole, I want to ask you to take us through that voyage, this arrival of the first slave ship with human cargo in 1619. How many were on board and where did they come from? So the first um, ship, it, it actually was not a slave ship, but it had uh, enslaved people as its cargo. It was a pirate ship. And it had attacked a Spanish slave ship on the open sea and removed from that ship about, uh, it was two English pirate ships, and they removed about 60 enslaved people um, and took them on board. And the first ship to arrive at Point Comfort, which was uh, the port right outside of Jamestown, was a ship by the name of the White Lion. And from the records, we know that there are about 20 to 30 uh, enslaved people from what is today uh, modern-day Angola. Hmm. So how did you come up with these accounts of of this arrival and what had happened? Is it well-documented? Parts of it are well-documented. So I did a lot of historical research and talked to historians um, to figure out as much as we can possibly know. Uh, we know about this arrival because one of the colonists sent a letter back to England talking about the day where they uh, purchased, uh, he called it 20-odd Negroes, and 20-odd is between 20 and 30. And we know what region they came from also from the records of that uh, ship. Leslie, Africans had been imported as slave labor in the English Bermuda colony before. So why was this arrival in 1619 in Jamestown so significant? Leslie, you're with us. Yes, it's significant because uh, we in the United States, of course, look to the founding of uh, North America and to uh, this as an important part of our background of the United States. However, you're correct that the British had been um, importing slaves along with uh, other European countries into the Caribbean and into South America. So this was a continuation of that Uh, the beginning of of that uh, slave trade. And we begin to see increasingly the formation of laws to exclude people of African descent from rights given to colonists in the U.S., using firearms, for example. But 1640 was a real turning point in the way laws treated Africans. Leslie, do you want to pick that up? Or, Nicole, have you got research on that? Because you were working exclusively in Virginia. Nicole? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I can pick that up. In 1641, uh, so the interesting thing about bringing enslaved people into Virginia and into the North American colonies in the 17th century is that in those colonies, we don't yet have uh, explicit slave codes. And so 1641 in Virginia, uh, there's a law in which black women are uh, taxed differently than other Uh, than white women. And that we point to as the beginning of the differentiation between black women as laborers 
uh, the beginning of the assumption that they will be enslaved and uh, that they will be seen as different from white women as laborers. The slave codes um, start in Virginia by the late uh, 17th century, and it's intimately tied to the fact that Virginia and Maryland by this time have figured out that tobacco is going to be their cash crop. Mm -hmm. So they know that they're going to turn to slave labor, and they began to think of ways to control enslaved people. This is after trying different kinds of labor, such as uh, Native American labor, both enslaved and indentured, and indentured European labor. It's at that point that we begin to see the establishment of laws um, that uh, limit black access, for example, to freedom, most importantly, but also to property owning, to even owning other slaves. And those laws spread throughout um, the British North American colonies uh, through the 18th century. Uh, one of them, Georgia. And Michael, I want to turn to you on that. You've published, a, a, you're an historian who's done extensive research on James Oglethorpe and other founders or those who are credited as founders who tried to keep slavery out of the colony. Was that a subject for debate in colonial Georgia? Absolutely. Uh, Georgia is the last of the 13 so-called original British colonies in North America. And it was founded primarily as a buffer between the Carolina colony, which obviously controlled by the British, and Florida, which was the northernmost Spanish outpost. And one of the driving forces behind it was the increasing number of British slaves that were escaping from South Carolina and other colonies to Florida, where they were granted freedom and citizenship. Uh, Florida, the Florida border was an international border. Mm -hmm. At that time, it was a Spanish colony. A Spanish colony. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, we began to see that the Underground Railroad running south as opposed to north. And Oglethorpe, along with other philanthropists, founded Georgia as a slave-free colony. Their argument was, though, not so much that they were concerned initially about the welfare of enslaved Africans, but they wanted to protect the physical and moral well-being of white colonists. They were convinced that allowing slavery into Georgia would encourage white colonists to be lazy and to not be uh, workers who would fulfill their destiny in terms of working for the food and products that they would produce. But eventually, uh, Oglethorpe, a man of God, he saw slavery as against the gospel. What kind of rationales did he and other white Christians begin to rely on to sanction slavery? Well, over time, Oglethorpe became more uh, adamant in his opposition to slavery and began to argue that slavery was, in fact, a crime and a sin. Uh, however, uh, he was run out of Georgia, literally, in 1743. Uh, he continued his advocacy in the return to uh, England. But here in Georgia, he began to plant the seeds of opposition. Now, it can be argued that the first the abolitionist movement began when the first African resisted enslavement. Mm. But as it relates to the white population, uh, I argue that those seeds were initially planted uh, in Georgia that ultimately uh, uh, migrated back to England and then back to the United States, culminating in the demise of shadow slavery in 1865. Well, let's look at this. This is in the years leading up to the American Revolution. You said 1743, he'd run out of Georgia. The ban on slavery ended here. Now, England begins to justify slavery when sugar was planted in Barbados. And as we heard from Leslie, uh, tobacco farmers in the mid-Atlantic started justifying it when tobacco became the crop there. 
So the U.S. Constitution is starting to form these ideas of liberty and justice for the free. So there is an ideology on race, who is free and who is not free. I'm wondering, Leslie, if you can pick up on that, this idea that rebellion from Europe might have been justified, but suppression here was not. How did that begin to form in the United St- in the early U.S.? You do have a, a slow development of anti-slavery thought initially among Quakers and other Christians um, as early as the uh, very late uh, 17th century. But uh, that idea in the face of the possibility of the wealth that could be created with slavery is a non-starter. Everyone in the New World and many people in Europe know that uh, slavery is the basis of wealth. It is the way to make the Americas wealthy. Um, By the time of the revolution, however, the heinousness of the Middle Passage, the horrific experiences of enslaved people on that journey, as well as the brutality that exists in the Caribbean in particular, there are an increasing number of uh, Europeans who are raising questions. In England in 1773, the Somerset case outlaws slavery in Great Britain. It's called uh, a free uh, Uh, free land citizenship. Once you set foot on British soil, you're supposed to be free um, as an enslaved person. But really, um, there is discussion and debate about ending slavery uh, right down into uh, the first third of the 19th century. Um, In the in terms of our Constitution, um, as many people know, there are a number of compromises that are made around slavery. The only piece of the Constitution um, that points to ending part of slavery is the the part that says that by 1808, Uh, the new nation could, if it wanted to, outlaw the transatlantic slave trade. Um, But even as northern um, colonies that are to become states began to end slavery during and after the revolution, of course, the southern colonies uh, that become states retain slavery, and there are a series of compromises made in the Constitution to protect slavery, and, and those compromises are signed on by northerners and southerners. Of course, most well-known is the Three-Fifths Compromise, which says that three-fifths of the slave population will be counted for representation in Congress. That compromise and the representation that it gives southern states will continue to um, enforce slavery as a federal system through the 19th century, as something that should be protected by the federal government. In addition, one more important thing is that uh, the federal government also in um, in its clauses in the Constitution um, says that it will put down uprisings. And many um, scholars interpret that as referring not simply to, uh, uh, you know, civil uprisings, but the uprisings of enslaved people. So there's a knowledge that the federal government, the militia, the military will step in to put down any slave uprisings that occur. So you do see the fastening of the, the deepening of slavery um, uh, in the Constitution. Uh, Leslie Harris, I just want to identify Michael and get to you in just a minute. She's an African-American history professor at Northwestern. Nicole Hannah-Jones is also with us, crafted this Sunday's New York Times magazine dedicated to 1619, and author and DeKalb County CEO Michael Thurman. Michael, what do you want to pick up on? Just following up on, I think, a very critical point that's been made by the other panelists. Uh, but let's go back even to the Declaration of Independence, the original draft by Jefferson, actually criticized slavery Mm -hmm. and criticized the King of England for being the propagators of slavery. But Georgia and Carolina delegates refused to sign the Declaration of Independence if that language remained in the document. Consequently, it was edited out. 
if you study the deliberations uh, during the Constitutional Convention, that was a robust debate between delegates as to whether or not those protections should be included in our U.S. Constitution that granted the right to own and buy and sell slaves. Once again, pro-slavery elements at the Constitutional Convention stated very clearly that if slavery was not protected, then there would be no support from slaveholding states. Right. So we began to see this big division in the uh, formation of American politics or political realities about, you know, protecting slavery, three quarters, you know, counting them in the electoral colleges, three quarters of a person. So the population and the power shifts. Nicole Hannah-Jones, I know that you've been looking at Virginia, but you also have been working on this 1619 project, seeing how this is reflected, how this history is played out. Anything that you wanted to add to that part? of the conversation about how deeply formed in our Constitution and our Union was slavery. Well, sure. I mean, one of the reasons that the colonists decide that they want to break off from England is over the issue of slavery, that England is starting to regulate slavery. It is starting to have qualms about slavery. Um, it is restricting slavery. And the colonists, uh, I, I mean, we need, we need to understand that a large number of the people we call our founding fathers were enslavers. Ten of our first 12 presidents were enslavers. Um, most of the people who are founders were coming from the state of Virginia, which was a slave state. And so what gave the founders both the wealth and uh I argue the moxie to believe that they could break off from the British Empire was the institution of slavery. And so part of the reason we even decide we want to be a country is to protect the institution of slavery. You see this in the debates. You see this um, even in the discussions around the Declaration. While Thomas Jefferson is writing the Declaration, he has Sally Hemings' uh, brother with him, an enslaved person, as he is writing these words about liberation. There's an enslaved person with him to wait on him hand and foot. And the reason he includes this passage in the Declaration is because the colonists are very aware that they are making the case for liberty while they fully intend to continue the institution of slavery. It's an attempt to give the colonists clean hands, to say that they are not responsible for slavery, that this was forced upon them, even as um, they fully intend that slavery will continue. The, the wealth of the new nation would be dependent upon it. So that kind of initial contradiction, which we also then see in the Constitution, some scholars say, led to uh, an even greater hardening of racial prejudice of the racial caste system. Because now, once we become this new country ostensibly based on liberty, we have to justify how we can both be a country based on individual rights um, and liberty while holding one-fifth of the population in bondage. And the way that you justify that is to say that those 500,000 people at the time of the revolution who are in bondage are not actually humans, and they are not citizens, and they are not part of the we in the we of the people, and therefore we are not uh, a hypocritical nation. So. And I think we are clearly still struggling um, with that contradiction and how do we deal with the black presence in America where we at once want to believe that we are exceptional, but on the other hand, the only reason you have 40 million black people in this country is because we are not exceptional. We were one of numerous slave uh, countries and were founded on slavery uh, just as um, most of the countries in the Americas. 
That's Nicole Hannah-Jones. She's leading the 1619 Project at the New York Times Magazine. We're going to hear more about her work on the project after the break. Also speaking with author and DeKalb County CEO Michael Thurman and Leslie Harris. She's author and African-American studies professor at Northwestern University. As we head into the break, we're hearing Glory by John Legend and Common. On more than 400 years of slavery in the U.S. coming up with On Second Thought. And you can join the conversation on our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. We're also on Twitter, at OST Talk. Leave us your comments about how this institution that really did form the United States economy and politics is affecting us today. I'm Virginia Prescott. This is On Second Thought. On Second Thought, stay with us. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. The AJC Decatur Book Festival is just around the corner, and tomorrow on the show I'm going to be speaking with featured author Karen Abbott. Her book, The Ghosts of Eden Park, is an epic Prohibition-era true crime story of the country's largest fabulously wealthy bootlegger who had Washington in his pocket and the female assistant AG who helped to bring him down. So be assured to join us for that conversation tomorrow morning, beginning at 9. Next week marks 400 years since the first ship carrying enslaved Africans landed in colonial America, a barbaric system that lasted 250 years and has lasting effects on American life and its place in the world. Well, today we're looking about how that system became codified in the American law and economy and really vision of itself as a moral nation how it continues to shape and define life in the U.S. today. Joined by three people who have studied various aspects of slavery, Nicole Hannah-Jones from the New York Times 1619 Project, author and DeKalb County CEO Michael Thurman, and author and African-American studies professor Leslie Harris. Nicole, I want to start with you because you and your fellow writers, including Jamail Bowie and Eve Ewing, had a conversation to roll out the 1619 Project initiative. Let's hear just a little bit from that event last night. We live in a time where information is more accessible than ever before, but I think poetry can play a unique role in provoking people to go out and learn things. What poetry can do is invite people in in a different way and also provoke a moment of empathy and imagination. And I I hope that all of our poems, I think that all these poems are asking people to be in a moment. So that's author and poet Eve Ewing there. She's part of this. She wrote an original poem about Phyllis Wheatley, the first African-American woman to publish a book of poetry, part of the 1619 Project this week in the New York Times Magazine. So I'm wondering about the goal of the 1619 Project. How is it reframing via poetry, essays, and history this question about the origins of slavery in the U.S.? So most Americans get a very poor education in the institution of slavery, in the legacy of slavery, and in the modern impacts of slavery. And that's, again, because um, it's called our original sin for a reason. We are ashamed of this history. This is not uh, fulfill kind of the, the national myth that we want to have. And so we don't learn very much about it. And when I pitched this project, um, I really wanted to reframe the way that we think not only about um, the impact of slavery and the true history of slavery, but also about black Americans who have always uh, been presented as problematic in this country. So 
through. Uh, we have a, an entire special section of the newspaper that was curated by Mary Elliott, who is the curator of the Slavery and Freedom exhibit at the National Museum of African American History and Culture. And that section is about the actual history and, and of the institution of slavery. And the magazine is actually trying to show that there's almost nothing about modern American life that has been untouched by this legacy. And so the conceit of the magazine is to take a modern institution that many Americans think has nothing to do with slavery or anti-black racism uh, that developed out of slavery and show that it does. So we have stories in the magazine covering everything from why is traffic so bad in Atlanta? Well, it actually has to do with highway policy that was trying to segregate black people from white people. It has to do with why do we uh, Americans eat more sugar than uh, any other Western society. We have stories about health care, about um, why we're the only Western industrial country that does not have universal health care, why we have the stingiest social safety net um, of all similar countries. About uh, We have a piece about democracy today and our political dysfunction. So it really is covering um, every a, a broad spectrum of American life and showing that, as I argue in my essay, the year 1619 is as important to the American identity as 1776 because so much of our politics, our culture, our society develops out of that decision in 1619 when the Virginia colonists purchased that first group of enslaved Africans and determined that they, too, were going to enter into the brutal slave trade. He just unpacked so many things, but I want to ch hit on one of them, the idea of how this history is taught. And, Leslie, I know there are some scholastic texts that refer to indentured servants being brought to the New World. Earlier this year, Virginia Governor Northam referred to enslaved people as indentured servants. So what is the distinction that we can make here? It's a com I think it's a complicated uh, question about indentured servitude, slavery. Um, I sometimes, when talking about that very early period in the 17th century, bond labor, we have a number of different labor systems in which people are held in various forms of bondage. There are some uh, people of African descent who are held as indentured servants. But the bottom line in terms of slavery is that only non-Europeans are held as slaves. That would be Native Americans and, of course, people of African descent. Europeans are never held as slaves. And that becomes incredibly important moving into the 18th century as Native Americans are um, not to be held as slaves by law and only people of African descent are to be held as slaves. So we, there is some, uh, there's some, I wouldn't say flexibility, but there are a number of different things happening even for people of African descent in the 17th century because in the British North American colonies, and when I'm not talking about the Caribbean, but in the British North American colonies, they have not yet figured out how to make money off of this system in a consistent way. But once they do, beginning with tobacco in Virginia and Maryland um, in the late 17th century, they very quickly move to writing into the law that only people of African descent will be held as slaves. And that becomes the law, of course, for the next um, couple of hundred years. And the slave codes that are developed developed at that time become the model for slave codes down to the Civil War. Yeah, so I want to pick up on one of the things that happened, a significant event at that time here in Georgia, became a major, major force in American slavery with the invention of Eli Whitney's cotton gin in 1793. Michael, you've written about that. How did that change things? 
Well, it industrialized. Obviously, the, the growing in the manufacture of cotton, and obviously there was a huge need for cheap labor. As a former labor commissioner here in Georgia, if you re- it, what we often miss is that this was a business decision. It was a business enterprise. Even enslavement, when you study the corporate records of the Royal African Company, uh, that was a major uh, slaving enterprise throughout for nearly a century. You see it. You look at the corporate books, the records that were being maintained. That was a total dehumanization of African people, and they became literally products uh, to be sold and marketed uh, all across the inter- international marketplace. The cotton gin made it much more profitable. Uh, to raise and produce cotton here in Georgia. And it was not just a southern phenomenon because the cotton was being shipped up the East Coast to to colonists uh, in the North as well as internationally. So it was an international marketing. And fingerprints, not just here uh, in America, in the South, but throughout the entire face of our planet was involved in it. It was triangular trade where nations in an international market bought it and trade, and the cornerstone was African flesh. Yeah. Well, this I is... Wanna, if I could... Yes, I'm please. Sorry. Please, go ahead. I just I'd, wanted to jump in and point out two things that I think are, are critical here. Um, what the... So we're, we're all taught about the cotton gin. We're all taught about Eli Whitney's invention, but not taught about what inhumanity it leads to. So we're taught as it, of it as kind of a sign of American ingenuity and um, industrialization, but not that what this does is it, it calls for the two things you need to grow a lot of cotton is you need land and you need labor. And so we see Western expansion, the removal of Native people from the Southeast in order to clear that land to grow more cotton. And then, of course, the expansion of slavery into the Lower South um, we have at this point banned, well, shortly thereafter, we will ban um, the importation, the legal importation of enslaved people. So to supply that labor, families, they say about a million um, enslaved families were broken up as um, black people were being sold from the upper south to the lower south to feed that labor. So I think that is a really critical point. And the other point because a common thing that I'm sure all of us hear all the time are white Americans saying, well, my family was from the North and we had nothing to do with it. We didn't own any slaves. Mm-hmm. Well, when we think about the Industrial Revolution, when we think about those textile mills, where do people think that cotton was coming from? The cotton that was fueling the textile mills in the North was coming from the enslaved labor of black people who were growing it in the South. The financial industry that was um, collateralizing, that was mortgaging, that was insuring the enslaved people in the South was in the North. This is how New York City becomes the financial capital of the world. Uh, At the time of the Civil War, the mayor of New York City was actually considering succeeding with the South because so much uh, of the imports or exports, excuse me, that were coming out of New York was slave-grown cotton. So uh, it's just very important to pause and say that this was a truly national endeavor that um, farmers in the North were supplying the food for uh, plantations in the South, which had used all of the land to grow cotton. Um, This was... Profits were being made all across the country, and in all aspects of the country, uh, white Americans were benefiting financially. You can even look at the the worker in the textile mill. The work, the white worker in the textile mill, has a job because of slave-grown cotton. 
Uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, thank you so much for that. Anticipating a question that I had about, you know, the idea that the South, uh, we're, you've done a lot of work, Leslie, yourself, on Savannah in the history of slavery, and of course, Michael, and Georgia. But this is all over the country. That's Nicole Hannah-Jones, an investigative journalist and creator of the 1619 Project at the New York Times. Leslie Harris, professor of African-American studies at Northwestern. Also, Michael Thurman, author and DeKalb County CEO, written a number of histories on slavery and in looking at places like Athens, where you come from. But, you know, we're, this is a huge, sprawling subject, and I'm so glad we're able to unpack some of these f- fundamental elements, but leading to that idea of the impact of how slavery has impacted the life of African Americans, the oppression, the violence against them. Now, you know, $13 of American wealth to every $1 of African American wealth. I know you are interested, Michael, particularly in reframing the idea of of how the legacy has affected human beings and their own agency. Can you pick up on that? Absolutely. And I believe I've dedicated uh, my research to beginning to understand the resistance, the determination of enslaved people to be free. Often taught about the more well-known African-American abolitionists, the Sojourner Truth, and obviously Frederick Douglass and others. But if you look closer, there was resistance from the moment the chains were placed on the backs and the wrists of African-American people. And what I would hope we will continue to do as we look at this 400-year history is understand that black people, enslaved people, did not go meekly into their enslavement. And that was resistance uh, from day one, from malingering in the fields to flight, to suicide, to, to refusing to allow your children to be born into slavery, to self-purchase individuals who purchase their own freedoms, to the alliances that were formed in Georgia, particularly with the Seminole Indians, who became a literally a red and black tribe who fought three successful wars against the United States, never defeated, entered a peace treaty, relocated to Oklahoma, to the alliances that enslaved people who were smart enough to use the international conflict over control of the southeastern United States between Spain and Britain and France to their advantage, allying themselves with the Seminoles, allying with the Spanish to fight against their enslavers, and in the Revolutionary War. Not generally known is that blacks in Georgia in particular allied themselves with the British during the Revolutionary War. Many of them ran away and joined the British forces. Yes, because the British offered freedom, uh, which the American patriot did not, at least in the South, uh, in conflict with what Washington actually asked them to do. And then in the Civil War, of course, when 200,000 black men, 90% of them former slaves, picked up weapons and marched off to fight for their freedom and the freedom of their people. So these are things, and just this past weekend, I was below Savannah. We celebrated the 176th anniversary of the birth of Susie King Taylor, the only African-American woman to write a Civil War memoir who married one of the first black soldiers and um, literally went to battle a black woman who helped to define what freedom would meant after slavery was destroyed. So the agency... And the willingness and the commitment of African people to be free should not be understated or marginalized in any way as we look at our history. Well, we're, we're living in a time when uh, uh, 
2018 poll, um, more than half of Americans think that white people are the most oppressed minority in the country. And I'm wondering for you, Nicole, as you're putting together this project, seeing, you know, everything from city planning to how much sugar we eat stemming out of the original sin of slavery. When you hear stories like Michael's, when you are bringing these stories forward, what are you hoping that people will take in that they haven't been able to before? I think what I'm hoping is to help people make connections that they don't want to make, that they haven't made. Uh, just the sheer breadth of uh, the areas of American life that we're covering, and, and each essay is intensively researched. It is um, historic. We hope to overwhelm you with the facts. Uh, I agree 100% with Michael. In my opening essay for the piece, my argument is that it has been black people who actually believed in the founding ideals that the founders did not believe in when they wrote those words. Amen. And that it has Amen. been black people uh, who have helped perfect this democracy. Yes. When they read the, the Declaration and the Constitution, they took those words literally. And they used the words of the revolution to call out the hypocrisy of this nation. And if you look at the black freedom struggles, um, I would even argue before we even land on these shores, we know that black people were resisting when they were being brought from uh, the, the slave castles to the coast of Africa, uh, when they were resisting on the open sea, and they resisted every moment, and, and black people have continued to resist. So when we look at every other modern rights struggle, the gay rights struggle, women's rights, disability rights, immigrant rights, they all come from, their inheritance is the black rights struggle. And it has black people's role continuously as the people who had no freedom at all to try to assure freedom for all other Americans. And I hope that through this project, we can finally give black people their due. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us. Nicole Hannah-Jones, is an, she's an investigative journalist and creator of the 1619 Project at the New York Times. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. And as this project unfolds, we hope to speak with you all again, including author and DeKalb County CEO Michael Thurman. Thank you so much for being here. Can I say thank you to Nicole Hannah-Jones for her, her work? This is amazing. Thank you, my sister. <laughs> Also, Leslie Harris, author and professor of African-American studies at Northwestern. Thank you. Closing today with Wade in the Water, a spiritual sung by enslaved people performed here by Ella Jenkins. Thanks so much for joining us for On Second Thought. <laughs>